This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Childhood obesity is a national epidemic. Nearly one in three children ages 2 to 19 in the United States is overweight or obese, putting them at risk for serious health problems. But what are the contributing factors to this new and growing problem in the U.S., and what can be done about it? Joining us with some insight into all of this is Dr. Amy Ellen Schwartz. She's the Daniel Patrick Moynihan Chair in Public Affairs at the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Welcome, Dr. Schwartz. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So this is a big problem in the United States, and I think it's even in some places, not just the United States, it's happening on a large scale throughout the world. What do we mean when we talk about childhood obesity? What does that actually mean? Well, it turns out that... um defining obesity is perhaps a little bit um, less straightforward than it might seem, but mostly what we think of when we think of obesity is um, you know, some measures that are based on a, a child's body mass index. And if it's over, say, the 95th percentile, we might think of that kid as uh, obese. Um, and if it's slightly lower, we'll think of them as overweight, and that's kind of based against national norms. Um, but there are other ways of measuring it, and some folks think about that in terms of uh, measures of body fat. But how how and why has it become such a significant problem? I mean, it seems like it's growing quite significantly. I think the, um, the evidence is that it grew quite substantially and alarmingly for uh, quite some period of time. And and I think now it's kind of leveling off, maybe. Um, that's not to say it's going away, but you know the the, the, the big upturn has has we've turned the corner on that. Um, although I don't I don't think we've seen a decline yet. Um, question is why? Uh, that's a little harder to answer. Uh, and I think folks like me are, are looking for the answers of of both why and what we can do about it. But it seems like there there are both potentially genetic issues that that play a role, but then. The bigger concern is behavioral issues, obviously, because you have some control over, or, or you don't have control necessarily about what's available in terms of food, but you do have some control over what you choose to eat. Absolutely. Um, you know, there are clearly environmental factors, contextual factors of your school and your neighborhood um, and your block. And then there are family factors, and there are individual factors, some of which may be genetic, might just be social and cultural. And there are all sorts of possible explanations, um, you know, that range from, uh, I don't know, the, the food desert folks were used to worry about. I'm a little less worried about that, I think, than, um, than maybe that. others. You know, the idea that, that you really can't get good food in, in a neighborhood, and so maybe that's why. Well, some a, neighborhoods, I think that probably is true, that there's lack of access. It, 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 it is true. Especially to fresh and healthy food. But what's really important thing is, um, you know, if we're looking for a, a population-based intervention, which, to be honest, is what I'm interested in, then we have to look at things that are are big enough to affect everybody or many people. Um, so in the work that I do, I'm interested in uh, what's the school lunch environment like? What is kids' breakfast like? In, in new work we're doing now, trying to understand what is the availability or proximity to fast food and fresh vegetables and good food. So I'm interested in these environmental features. Uh, we don't know that much about it. Well, one of the things that's come out in recent years is this whole notion of how much is being um, sold in our standard groceries, you know, food chains that is not really food. 
In other words, <laughs> that is, you know, 15 yeah. different chemicals before you get to the, any nutritive yeah. value. And the, this whole notion of pushing the idea of, of eating more whole food or food that that our grandmothers or yes. our great-grandmothers. eat food, might. mostly plants. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Not too much. That's right. Exactly. You know, that seems to me as, as, as sensible diet advice, and certainly it's what's I, what I tell my own children, I tell myself. Um, but, you know, in, in the, the work that I'm doing, I'm really interested in, in how, um, how we set the stage for that. Mm-hmm. You know, what are we doing from the public sector point of view that makes eating well easier or... Um, or harder. Or harder, exactly. Well, some of it's education. Some of it, as I said, is what's happening in terms of food the, the food production industry in this country. I mean, the classic situation of walking down a, a cereal aisle and you have all these bright and shiny boxes of nothing but corn. Absolutely. Or, you know, Michael Pollan, as you quoted yes. so well. Um, or nothing of any nutritional value. And so we're eating these highly calorie-dense foods, a lot of sugar or, mm-hmm. or high-fructose corn syrup, and we're perhaps not even realizing that we're not getting our bang, the bang for our buck nutritionally. Undoubtedly. Um, you know, there's all, all sorts of issues. Another one would be, um, you know, soda and sugary beverages, which we know just are, have huge amounts of calories and are, are really easy to drink. And um, so this, I think, is a particular issue for kids. What's interesting to me, though, over the, the, the I mean, you know, again, all of that was available when I was growing up and I'm in my 60s. So all of that was available then. And we didn't have this kind of out this this upturn in childhood obesity. Today, there seems to be more of that. And the question I have in my mind is, and I think many people think, is why now? Why so much now? Why more now? And one thing that strikes me is also what happens to kids that's different than when I was in that age range is that kids are more restricted very often in terms of being physically active. I mean, I, I'm wondering if you yeah. found that in some of your well, observations I or should, research. I should confess it's not something we've done a whole lot of work on right. yet. Right. Um, but... Um, you know, I, I share that concern, and uh, Whether, coming from an education research background, and I did a bunch of other work on schools, you know, you get particularly worried that the the role of physical education has changed in the schools, pushed in part by, by people with good hearts who were thinking, we really have to make sure kids get the academics that they need. And there was a big to-do and big discussion about whether that pushed out the focus on physical education and pushed out that is that true? Is that a big cause? I, I don't know. Um, have we made it harder for kids to to walk to school? I mean, when I was a kid, I walked to school and played or, outside or after school, our, and that was exactly. <laughs> but, we we rode our bikes, we walked long distances, and there wasn't so much the concern for childhood safety. I think as has emerged, yeah, p- maybe a misplaced lack of Potentially. concern. Um, but, you know, is that the big cause? I, I don't know. I don't think we know these things. It was actually kind of uh, surprising to me how little we we know um, about this issue. And, you know, as I said, I, I come from doing education research where we have many years of doing very good work looking at what causes kids' test scores to go up or down. And part of the reason for that is there's a huge amount of detailed data on that. And I I'm not saying we know everything we need to know about that, and there's a lot more work to be done. But there's no similarly, well, there hasn't been similarly good data 
and childhood obesity, childhood weight. So when you think of these big population-based studies in, uh, in education and about children's academic success, they're just not matched with work on obesity. Well, it's work, yet to be done. And it's the work that we're doing, the work um, we've been doing in New York City on uh, childhood obesity is possible only because New York City started doing the fitness gram for every kid every year. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you hold that thought for a minute. Okay. I want to get back to that. But let's talk a little bit about what the consequences of obesity are. I think we've alluded to them, that there right. are health consequences. I mean, what do we know in terms of if kids are obese as youth? What, what ends up happening? Well, I think the, um, there are, are two kinds of issues. You know, there are the immediate issues. And, and, you know, clearly there are immediate issues. Kids are at, you know, higher risk of certain kinds of illnesses. And, you know, they... At an extreme, they can have sort of secondary and related um, health conditions. But I think that uh, perhaps a bigger concern and for more people is that childhood obesity will lead to adult obesity, which we know was associated with a whole host of medical issues. Cancer, heart disease, exactly. High blood pressure. Diabetes, you know. The whole whole laundry list. Right, exactly. And and those are those are a big problem. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with Professor Dr. Amy Ellen Schwartz and we're talking about childhood obesity in school aged children and potentially what can be done about it. So we know that if you are an obese child, you more than likely will go on to be an obese adult. And we have plenty of data to show that obesity leads to all these kind of health concerns. But I think even in the obese youth, they are more likely, even at that stage of life, to have high cholesterol or high blood pressure, and they sometimes will develop a pre-diabetic condition. So it's not that they only have to wait till Mm -hmm. they become an adult. Mm -hmm. It has real consequences then. So what can communities and or schools do to make a difference? And that's been the heart of your research. Tell us about that. So um, surprisingly, I think we have lots of good ideas and very little that's been um, shown to be effective. And so my research and my energy for this research comes from trying to figure out what has worked and what do we know um, that a a community or a school can do. Um, The most exciting is the research that we've just completed looking at what I think of as just an incredible intervention. It's putting water jets into school cafeterias. And in that, what you're doing is making available drinking water to kids at lunchtime. Now, how is that different than basically water fountains that existed in schools, or do, really do they no longer exist? Great question. You know, when you think about a water fountain, you think about, you know, one kid at a time and a long line, and they turn the thing, and a little thing goes up in the air. It's slow. It's slow. It may or may not be cold. Um, and a handful of kids can get through that. What the, the water jets do is they deliver the water quickly and it's chilled. So kid can go up and just quickly get a, a cup of water and the next kid and the next kid and the next okay. kid. So it's, it's, a, it's really a increasing availability. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You might have seen something like this in uh, you know, in your office building where you can go to fill up your jug of water. Um, the idea is you're not standing there for a whole three minutes waiting for the water that might be lukewarm. You're in, you got your cold water and you're out. Um, so what did you find? So we find childhood obesity goes down in the schools that adopted the water jets. 
And, and this was just in the cafeterias, placed just in the cafeterias? Just in the cafeterias. So, you know, one or two, a handful of these in the cafeteria, no requirements, no rules. We didn't actually, um, you know, this wasn't implemented as part of the study. This was implemented by the Office of School Food in New York City. They started rolling these out. They're inexpensive to see what would happen. So you found a correlation between the installation of these well, and uh, a decrease in the amount of obesity yeah, in that population. Absolutely. I, I would go a little bit farther. I mean, what we find is that after the installation of the water jets, obesity goes down, weight goes down. And we're convinced that this is a causal effect because we're able to compare it to other schools that didn't get the water jets or to schools that haven't yet got the water jets. So, you know, this isn't a, a huge effect, but it's significant. And I think it's the kind of intervention we should be looking for. You know, we're not gonna solve childhood obesity with one big intervention. I think it's gonna be like lots of other things. It's lots of little interventions. So tell me about the whole idea of how changing the avail the kinds of food that's available in schools. I know, granted, schools are the kind of capturing place for that's kids. That's right. I mean, and I and that's right. And my own in in an earlier life, I was very involved in schools as a school board member, and I understand that the schools are often looked to as a place to really solve all of society's <laughs> <Yes>. ills <laughs> because we have a captive audience. That's right. And so in this case, we're using the school as a place to represent the community in a way. It, does, it doesn't take care of all the outside hours no. that a kid is not in school. But let's just get back to this. So if you offer within the schools an improved nutritional um, you know, resource, how, how have you seen that make a difference? In other words, you've looked at certain programming. What have you seen? Well, we haven't looked yet at what happens outside of school, no. although an, we're hoping to do that, looking in a, in a study that maybe I'll come back again and tell you about next year. Um, Great. But um, I think there's there's a couple of different ways these, these things can interact. First of all, what's really important about, uh, about school lunch is that you know we're not adding something new to what schools are doing. Schools are doing this. This is the one of the largest federal programs um, for uh, providing food to people. I mean, right after um, SNAP. So this is a huge program. We're already doing this. Question is, what does it look like? Who gets it? What do we charge? So we're not creating a new burden. But We're how, trying to fine-tune something. But fine-tune it in what way to so, affect obesity? So here are some things. Um, water jets, salad bars, changing the availability of competitive foods, say reducing the availability of soda in vending machines. Um, these are all things that can both affect what you eat at lunch and what you learn about eating outside. So the fresh fruits and vegetables programs and salad bars, they might not affect your obesity this week or next week, but over the long term will change kids' exposure to food and what they think about when they eat. So we're hoping to do research on these, and we're starting that. Now, in the very little bit of time we have left, you did do some work, though, actual research on this idea of the breakfast. Absolutely. Briefly tell us about that. We looked at what happened when uh, New York City went to free breakfast and kids started to eat more breakfast, and we looked at breakfast in the classroom, and we found no uh, effect, negative, no uh, deleterious effect on obesity, and in fact, a little bit of evidence that it might decrease it. So it could be that after all, school breakfast um, really is the most important meal. 
but um, you know, always more work to be done. Well, it's very exciting work. It's very important work. I thank you so much for coming in and beginning to share it with us, and I would welcome you to return again when you have more information or more studies to share with us. It's obviously something we need to do to make a dent in this even if it's a stabilizing uh, problem in this country. But thank you so very much. I appreciate your coming in. My guest has been Dr. Amy Ellen Short. She's the Daniel Patrick Moynihan um, Chair in Public Affairs at the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Once again, thanks for coming in. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air.